Professor Bob Hewitt from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewitt. And today on GDP, beginning our second season, we're proud to have Dr. Gabriel Verdal, who is a research associate with the Center for International Policy Studies at the University of Ottawa, and she's an independent consultant. Over the past 15 years, Gabrielle has worked in over 50 countries worldwide for a variety of UN agencies and international organizations, including UNDP, DPKO, UN Women, and the International Foundation for Electoral Systems and the Carter Center. Now, she she specializes in democracy assistance, especially promoting women's political rights in post-conflict and authoritarian states. And that's what we're, we're happy to have her here to talk about today. Gabrielle holds degrees from McGill University, uh, Sciences Po Paris, and Université Montréal. She received the American Political Science Association's Congressional Fellowship and Canada's very own Pierre Elliott Trudeau Doctoral Scholarship for her work in the area of violence against women and politics. And today on GDP, we're happy to have her here in the podcast studio to talk about democracy assistance. Gabrielle, welcome to GDP. It's great to be here. You bet. So this is really interesting. This is the beginning of our second season of the podcast. As you know, this isn't just a window into our introduction to development studies class. This is how it was started. But uh, now we're at the point where we are able to talk to experts like yourselves. And not just scholarly experts, as we heard from your CV, but practical. You've got 15 years of experience going places and doing things related to democracy assistance. And uh, we can expect more interesting characters like you to come along on the second season. But the idea is we don't just want to talk about the, the book work. We want to know what it's like to kind of live, breathe, and field development firsthand. So welcome aboard. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk about what we do. Awesome. Now, what do you do? That is the question. We have, we've, you've uh, identified yourself as a practitioner and expert in democracy assistance. That's your game. So first and foremost, what is it? So democracy assistance is actually one of the best kept secrets in international development uh, field. It is... Um, in my opinion, one of the most essential and basic and, and critical forms of development aid, but it's one of the ones that's the least understood uh, and probably the least well-known. So democracy assistance or democracy governance and human rights assistance. Essentially, it's all different types of, um, of support to countries either in post-conflict context or authoritarian transition context to help uh, the citizens and the states in those countries realize their civil and political rights. So um, kind of the core space of that is elections assistance, which is where I've spent uh, the majority of my career. And elections assistance is a fascinating field because uh, transitional elections, and transitional elections aren't necessarily just one election after a war or after a, a political opening, but they can take place over a series of years. Um, they're huge events that are critical to upholding um, upholding a, a system based on, on human rights and respect for the rule of law. So they have to go really well. <clears throat> and they're also really challenging to organize. If you think about it, um, well, what we say often in the field is that elections are the single biggest logistics operation that a country will engage in outside of wartime. Uh, and you are, in fact, mobilizing basically your entire population of a country on a single day 
in an event that has to follow a really tight playbook of rules and regulations in order to be viewed as credible, legitimate, and, um, and inclusive. So um, the work that I do is really geared around that type of thing, um, both the technical processes and also the part that I find really exciting, um, the inclusion side of it. So making sure that not only are you following and respecting technical and legal processes, but that people are able to have their voices heard, that they're able to make informed decisions, that they're able to participate securely, and that they're able to realize a democratic dividend from their participation. So seeing that democracy does, in fact, contribute to stability, to security, to economic growth, and to the expression of personal personal liberties. Interesting, yes. Yeah. So the, that last bit about stability and growth, was it uh, Amartya Sen pointed out back in the 80s that there's never been a famine in a functioning democracy, mm. in that sense. Uh, but you also mentioned about awareness, that to give people within some of the countries you work with, some of which are authoritarian or post-conflict, to make them aware of their civil rights. And I guess the question is, in these areas, are there active forces that try to keep people unaware hmm. of their rights? That's an interesting question. I think, um, and then there's several answers to that. Um, when I started out my career, I was working in countries like the DR Congo, which had not seen democratic elections for um, many decades and which had been so ravaged by poverty, conflict, um, and all that, and a lack of infrastructure, that uh, it, was, it was more than active forces preventing people from, uh, from gaining the civic awareness and education that they needed to have meaningful participation. It was just a complete disintegration of the state, uh, which is a more systemic problem. Uh, today, I think it's a more complex question. I think we are now entering an age of democracy work that is deeply troubled by issues of disinformation, of misinformation, and other things where you do have bad actors coming to influence uh, and misinform people uh, about what democracy is, why it is to the benefit of society, uh, and to, to, to disinform people about political candidates um, based on baked on fake news and other and things. We, and we've like seen that. that in North America. Oh, absolutely. Quite a bit. And Russia and our friends in Britain have all experienced this. And so now this is a factor as well in the, in the global south? Uh, no, I think it, it absolutely is. Um, this is kind of the cutting edge and the front curve of democracy systems today. Uh, and I'd be happy to, to talk more about the, the nuts and bolts of the more basic side of things, but it's a really exciting topic to think about what is happening in terms of authoritarian influence on democracy spaces at the moment. Um, because these actors, the international human rights system started after the Second World War, um, really anchored democracy as the only game in town, as, uh, as they say. And ever since that time, international human rights system and democracy on the whole has been a threat to authoritarian actors around the world. So they now use any means they can to undermine it and to undermine the actual credibility and legitimacy of democracy itself. And we see that everywhere from Trump's US to uh, countries around the global south where, um, where negative influencers are using disinformation campaigns against democracy right. to undermine support for democracy as a whole which ultimately benefits themselves. Right. So this is, and this is not a new trend. I mean, we've seen, just to jump back to the, the global north a bit, especially in the U.S., uh, the issues of gerrymandering have been going on for years. I mean, I just, I love looking at that, that uh, writing map in Houston, where you'll have literally a, this very 
tight neighborhood in downtown Houston, but yet the ridings will extend way out into the country, and hence the city of Houston always tends to vote red because mm -hmm. that's the way the, the pie has been sliced. Um, and, you know, and there's other things too, like the uh, there's the, the, the one law in uh, Mississippi, how the gubernatorial state elections run there, is, uh, is wild. They, they have to get a majority of popular vote, and they have to get a majority of the 122 uh, territories or ridings within within Mississippi in order to claim the governor's seat. And that was intentionally out of Jim Crow laws in the 1890s, whereby there were only certain ridings that actually had uh, African-American populations all put together. So it was physically impossible to ever have an African-American governor uh, for many, many years in Mississippi as a result of that. Um, now, with your own work, though, I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of what the actual action of democracy assistance looks like. We sort of see that there's this bigger background of, just like you said, if people, if people actually went out and were able to totally freely vote without any restriction, it would upset the apple cart and, and power would not be what we know it as. Mm -hmm. But what, is your, what are your own work experiences with democracy assistance? What, uh, what does that entail? Oof, well... I'm certainly a biased audience, but I think it is the most exciting uh, and potentially valuable field of democracy or of development assistance to be working in. But of course, you're not speaking to a, a neutral court here. But um, are we ever speaking to a neutral court? <laughs> no, but I think it's it's. It, let me answer first the question of, of why is it such a critical field to work in. Um, when I started out my career in development assistance, I knew as a very young. Uh, professional that I wanted a career that was based on social justice, that was based on human rights um, uh, internationally, and I didn't quite know what that looked like, and I put my finger in a lot of different pies um, before I came down to the basic realization that uh, without a functioning government, without the rule of law, without the realization of personal rights and liberties, none of the rest was working. Corruption through education, uh, healthcare systems, you agriculture, you name it, but all of the other fields of international development do come down to governance systems. And so for me, it was a really critical space to work in. Um, little did I know at the time as a young professional that it was actually a job, you know? Mm. Uh, I was influenced by the, the protest movements um, around the, the Seattle protest and the globalization movements in the late 90s. And uh, democracy assistance is, to me, a form of professional protest in many ways because it is institutionalizing peaceful and constructive ways for people to express their voices, their needs, and their opinions. So conceptually speaking, I think it's critical and I think it's, it's, a, it's a vital field to work in. Um, at a practical level, it's lots of different things. Um, I like to, to take the case of the DRC Congo because that was a really interesting one, but back in um, 2004, 2005, the Congo was coming out of what was the biggest war of the century, possibly, um, known often as the Third World War. A uh, hugely complex environment where the organization that I, I ended up working for ultimately was involved with the, the peace negotiations and uh, ensuring that those negotiations weren't just being held between the, you know, splitting the, the spoils of war between the, the rival parties, but were having diverse voices. So civil society voices, women's voices, diverse groups that were having a voice in that process sitting down, coming to an outcome on that, working to agree on election date, helping to construct an electoral law, making sure that the electoral law was constructed through consultations across the country as much as possible to make sure that they were responding to the needs of the country, uh, working then to construct an electoral commission, 
uh, hire that staff, train that staff, develop the processes, the procedures, the institutions, the forms, all of it uh, that make an election an election. Um, working with candidates to help them register their candidacies. And you know, when, when you're working in a country like the Congo where there hasn't been an election in so many years, there's an overwhelming excitement about participation and you will end up with you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of mm. candidates mm. Uh, because political parties aren't well formed. Right. Um, so working with the political parties and, and I can go on So and this on, is but... an election observing. This is... Oh, no, no, This no. is something completely yeah. beyond. And if I'm hearing you right, there's still sort of the sense that your work is about kind of realizing these civil rights within the countries that you go to. So you've been to DRC, you've been to other places in, in West and East Africa as well. Is this fair to say that in many countries there is some sort of architecture about what the rights of elections are or how election processes are supposed to go, but yet the capacity to fulfill those rights needs assistance? Sure. Yes, um, very much so. I mean, the, the basic rights are written out in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Affairs and Declaration of Human Rights and other normative documents. Each country tends to have some type of legal legacy, constitutional or otherwise, uh, legal framework defining an electoral system, process, implementation. Um, but depending on the historical path of that country, um, they often need to be deeply revised. They may have been written by dictatorships. They may have been written by deeply flawed or, or problematic regimes. They might have been written in contexts that just are no longer pertinent. And um, so they need to be updated. But, you know, again, running an election is a really complicated Oh, it's chaos. Thing. I mean, we just had one in Canada. And, yeah. uh, you know, the wheels were going to come off the place uh, in, in that process. And there were, I mean, there were even counts in our uh, October, uh, was it October? Yeah, October 20, uh, 2019 election here that, uh, you know, there were ballots and writings in Toronto that were unable to post. There were things mm -hmm. that, that were really complicated. And it sounds like there's a lot of, a lot of people moving to get this thing to work. Yeah, and no election is ever going to be perfect, no electoral system and no electoral process, but you are, put yourself in the situation of these electoral commissions around the world. You're working in countries that have deep distrust of the population, deep conflict, literal conflict between the parties and the candidates. I mean, I've worked in countries where each of the leading candidates has their own private militia. Um, you are working with you know, no means at all. And yet you need to mobilize hundreds of thousands of poll workers, of other polling officials. You need to train them. You need to pay them. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to collect really sensitive materials in a timely manner. Right. Um, really complicated logistics so operations. So your, your work comes in there with strategies and skills to help with those logistics. Yeah, a lot of it is logistics. A lot of it is technical arrangements in these things. Um, that's one side of democracy assistance is that technical support to those types of processes. And the other part is about civic engagement. It's about awareness, it's about participation, it's about helping people understand how to connect with their representatives, with their candidates, how candidates can develop platforms, how candidates can reach out to their constituencies better, mm -hmm. um, all of these things. So you might say like a hard and a soft side to democracy assistance, which is very different from election observation and where they're often confused. Election observation is a much more visible field because they're there uh, when the spotlight is on, you know, they're there right. on, on show day. Right. Um, for us in the elections assistance space, election day is actually probably the calmest time because we... <laughs> right, into the hammock. You got you built the thing and now it's, yeah, it's, it's going to roll. It's the eye of the storm. Um, 
much of the work is in the lead up and the preparation to it. Election day unfolds as it will, and then a lot of the work is in the post space also, post electoral space. So election observers come in and they make sure that um, the processes in the country are respecting both the national legal framework and the international normative framework. Um, we can't be a part of observation. It would be a, a conflict of interest because we, in fact, are working with states to help them design the infrastructure. Design yeah, the yeah, infrastructure. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So, so that's, that's different. It's a common, it's a common conclusion. Right. So then the the that's good to clarify because I guess the observers then they then have the the, the mechanisms to report errors and violations and, and this sort of thing. So I guess my two questions are first off is uh, you know in terms of does it work? Do these reforms actually you know, does the rubber hit the road with it? Uh, what about issues of fraud? Like, I mean, if you are in places where you have very rural populations, where there's already struggles to get uh, people to places, I'm thinking like medical clinics or, uh, you know, the best of time, how in the world do you get them to voting stations? Or do you get the voting stations to them? And, you know, someone could be very, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek saying, well, it was not it just be better just to forge a few ballots? I mean... Or is this something oh, that, that comes along? Oh, that is old school. Oh, that we don't forge anymore. School. No, stuffing ballots is out of fashion, man. Get get with the times. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, fraud is definitely a major problem. Um, good old ballot box stuffing is um, has become a lot more sophisticated nowadays. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, fraud is a major issue. It has a lot to do with, um, I would say, the systems that come before the electoral process and also with the counting of the process. It's one thing if all the ballots are turned in, but if they're not counted the right way, then, eh, you know. Good point. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we work a lot with the procedures around transparency for ballot counting and transmitting results in. Uh, we work a lot around the transparency processes for other things. But, I mean, it's fascinating. Like, uh, uh, can I tell you a quick story? I don't know how we oh, are. Oh, yeah, we're, we're good for time. All right. You just edit me out when you need to. Um, so transparency, like counting the ballots, where does the fraud come in? Because you're working in context of such massive mistrust, you end up with cases such as in, in Guinea, where I was um, several times in, in, in the years. But, you know, your political parties are many because political parties aren't coherent. So maybe you've got 15 political parties in the room. Uh, you've got all of your local internet or your local observation groups who are there. So maybe another 10 people in a ballot in a, in a counting room. Uh, maybe you have some journalists in there. You've got your international observers. You've got your polling staff. So you're in a room on election night after the polls have closed counting ballots. And crowded, hot, dark, no electricity. Uh, and in Guinea, or, or even worse again would be Congo, for example, um, counting these ballots is not a simple process. You're not going tick, 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 tick down the line. Uh, in the Congo elections back um, about a decade ago now, uh, any given district could have up to 900 candidates running. Uh, an individual ballot was six pages long, poster-sized, and you had to count the individual marks on each of these massive ballots, one by one, in the dark, with 25 people breathing down your neck to look at every single tick mark on a box. Like, you're talking transparency in these cases. and painful. I mean, we sat in a room for 36 hours uh, to get through that process. Nobody coming in and nobody going out. Not a pretty picture. No. Um, but it's that important to people. Um, building trust is that important and being open enough to allow all of those different actors to be a part of the process and to witness it 
um, is really critical. And I mean, that's a that's a very local level example. Obviously, this goes all the way um, up the food chain to the case where you're dealing with transparency for for millions of voters in any given population. Um, but yeah, those are the types of issues that we deal with. Does it work? Does it work? Um, democracy is on the decline. Yeah, like in Latin America right now, in a bad way. The Economist did a, a survey, uh, their intelligence unit, that showed that more than half of Latin Americans are in favor of living in non-democratic systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, a combination of seeing massive inequities form in democracies like Brazil, Peru, uh, and the increase of nepotism and corruption within those systems, uh, also combined with a, a youth population that is not feeling uh, enfranchised by what the state is offering. And the final mix in the pie is the older generations who may have benefited Mm -hmm. under the years of dictatorial rule who pine for the good old days. And it's in a real ferocious mix. And we see the way it's carrying out now in Brazil. We see conflict rising in Chile and in Argentina now. So democracy in Latin America is rough, but you have been around the world doing this. And these reforms, these institutions, this effort to create awareness and then action about people's democratic rights, does it work? It can't be measured in black and white terms. You can't say that every election is a step towards democracy. Um, And you can't say either that uh, democracy and authoritarianism is on a a linear path. Um, But yes, it works. And it depends on how you measure it and how you talk about what you're measuring. Every election, even if it breaks down or if it if it goes wrong or, or, or something, the the processes that were a part of it were critical to ensuring success in certain spaces. So if you have educated a generation of young people to be engaged in this process and to be outraged if the election fails, that's success. If you have had a participative consult- consultation-based legal reform process underway, um, that's a success, even if the election itself has, a, has other problems for whatever reason. Um, success needs to be measured in different spaces. It needs to be measured as part of a really complex process and an ecosystem of activities that is everything that goes into civic and political rights. And it needs to be seen over time as well. And I have to say, it works and it, it has to work because there's really no option to it as far as we've seen in the world today. We cannot go back to a space where people's rights and freedoms are systematically violated, where human rights violations are the order of the day, um, and where people live in fear and uh, under a threat of constant conflict, which is the opposite. So right. we need to find solutions as well. And we, I, I'm very wary of the surveys like in Latin America, like you mentioned, and otherwise that recognize this, this, this reversal of support for democracy um, because the, the risks are just so high. Yeah, and this is what we're seeing the conflict in Hong Kong. Yeah. being exactly about. I mean, you know, having uh, done a bit of research on that and talked to some activists in Hong Kong, the, the attitude isn't uh, even as much as well, we got to make the mainland democratic uh, or we want to maintain our democratic rights or we, we would love to maintain our democratic rights in Hong Kong well past 2047. Now the fight's almost like we have to try to protect this while we have it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's even more fragile than, than initially thought. Um it does work. Is there one 
type of election that works or not. And I, I ask that only because every time we have an election in Canada, there seems to be a conversation that our first-past-the-post system needs reform, that we need to do uh, representation by population vote. New Zealand has a very unique system. Uh, everyone's got their own slice on, on, on how it works. Have you seen anything that, in your, in your experience, tends to be better? There's no single electoral system, per se, um, that's most appropriate in any given space. And um, I feel quite strongly about that because, as, as you mentioned at the outset, I work very much in women's political rights. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions, in my opinion, uh, is that certain electoral systems are better for women than others. Um, I think it really matters. That's a misconception. I believe it is a misconception, but save that for another podcast. Um, Season three. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. Oh, um, no, electoral systems exist for a variety of different reasons. They are historical legacies, they are cultural legacies, um, different systems respond to different needs and demands in, every, in any given country. Some electoral systems uh, will reduce conflict by creating um, you know, more consolidated party systems. Others uh, will, will reduce the risk of conflict by creating um, coalition-based governments, things like that. Uh, the choice of an electoral system needs to respond to the, the, the national, what's going on in, in any given state, and it's not just based on any single consideration. So you wouldn't choose an electoral system based on women's rights only, or on conflict only. Um, it just needs to be embedded, and it needs to be revisited. And that's actually something I've really appreciated uh, as an American in Canada, is uh, the willingness to go back and reflect on how the electoral system is impacting democracy and, and, and voice in the country over mm -hmm. time. You know, in the U.S., that's not part of the conversation. Right. Like, right. our electoral system down there is, is, is written in stone and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. And I think rigidity uh, around the basic structures and principles of democracy is actually a risk. Uh, yep. No, I mean, the systems change. I mean, both yeah. in Canada and the U.S., the when elections were taking place they were initially founded with very particular purpose to keep power in the hands of landholders especially in the u.s and in canada uh, one of the designs was to make sure that people in rural areas uh, would actually have more of a, a voice as the country was principally a rural country and now it's principally urban and there's some conflicts there yeah no absolutely uh you know in this line of work you'll see constitutional revisions come up once a month or more uh, if you're working on a global level on this and that's healthy if it's being done in an inclusive healthy way right um, and I'm not talking about all the constitutional revisions that just came down the line in the last couple of years that are opening up the presidential seats for third terms and, and lifetime terms that was that was a different wave of, of constitutional reviews but yeah. uh, a lot of legal reform processes are part of this continuum of constantly revisiting the quality of democracy in any given country right and that's as important in Congo in Pakistan in Guatemala as it is in Canada and the US. Very interesting. My last question for you is, how did you get involved? Why choose this as a career of, uh, of all the careers where, you know, your background in international development and political science, why here? It seemed like a stay, stay at home type of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Um, Get some gardening done, paint the windows. Right. Um, no, it has not been a choice of career for the faint of heart, I would say. There's been a lot of insecurity involved in these things over the years. Um, but no, it goes back to what I, I said a bit earlier. I, I knew 
in college that I wanted to work in social justice uh, and in development. I was really influenced by these, these protest movements around me at the time. And um, I did try out a number of different fields and came to the conclusion that uh, that democracy and governance is empowering, um, is essential, and is just integral to everything else that's going on in these systems, then I really wanted to be part of it. I uh, am not courageous enough to be uh, an, an emergency humanitarian worker. That's incredibly difficult uh, work to do on a personal level. Um, development assistance in other areas are critical, but I really uh, will never tire of working in a field that lets people explore their voice and their freedom and find their voice and talk about their needs and dream about their countries and figure out uh, in practical ways how to make that come about. And it's deeply rewarding also as a professional because I feel it is so closely connected to peace and security, which is the first thing um, that anyone needs to to go on a path of development. You hold elections in order to find peaceful resolution to conflict and to transfers of power. And um, it's just a wonderful thing to be a part of. Any advice for anyone who is looking to get into this kind of a gig? Um, I'm not sure. I'll have to think about that a bit. Um, I think any choice in development careers is a combination of factors. Um, not only where your personal talents and skills lie, um, but also where you assess the need to be most critical and um, and where you see where you see impact being most possible. So for everyone that answer will be different. Very good. Dr. Rodell, thank you for coming by the podcast studio. Uh, we're very lucky to find you here, as I know that you're on your way to other destinations far, far away, and yeah. uh, to keep doing the work that you're doing. So thanks very much for taking the time and joining us on GDP. Anytime.